TikTok. Derek the Miley. Cause sexuality is tough. And okay, sexist isn't good enough. No. Sex Talk with Eric Miley. Hey, folks. Welcome to Sex Talk with Eric Miley. Eric Miley here. I'm just tickled today. I'm, I'm really excited about who I've brought to talk with you all. I have brought Vanessa Carlisle, PhD. She professionally, they for the people who love you, which I love that description, is a queer polyamorous writer, educator, and consultant with 20 years of experience as a sex worker. You teach weekly somatic self uh, support sessions on Instagram Live. I was referred to you from one of my wonderful colleagues, and I've been uh, now a huge fan of your Instagram. Vanessa, welcome. Thank you. Fun to be here. And so we're going to talk a lot about a lot of things. So I don't want to miss out on all the things we're going to talk about today. So I want you to tell me a little bit about your journey through life, through sex work, but also becoming a podcaster and, and that, that project of On the Dresser. Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. I, like so many, started stripping in college. I was a nanny and I couldn't keep my grades the way I wanted with the hours I needed to work. And um, I don't feel naked when I'm naked. So it worked out really well for me. It was a job I liked. It was a better job than other jobs. I had a friend who did it. And so, you know, I changed my life at 19 in a way that um, I actually felt very clear about what the consequences were going to be. And they were myriad, right? They, They were myriad. As I aged, moved, did other things. I was dancing in clubs. I started seeing clients outside the club. I've done, I think I counted seven different kind of genres of sex work, (laughs) some more and less legal, but I've been at it, at it or taking a break from it for 21 years. So that's sort of a long trajectory, long story. In 2016, 2015, can't remember now. It's all running together. Quarantine has really, really, really screwed with all of our sense of time. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely it was definitely prior to Trump's election. There was a slate of new shows that started on the Pacifica station in Los Angeles, which is KPFK. Mm-hmm. They had a late night block, brand new shows, late night block, queer people, people talking about weed, a black led show about hip hop. And it was like all new, younger voices than the station had had before. And they wanted a show about sex. In the history of the station, they'd never had a show about sex and sexuality. So I came on as a guest on that show because I was like friend of a friend kind of situation. And then the host of the show was like, I have too many hats. I want you to host this show. Can you come back next week? (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. And I was like, "Ah!" So I was in the middle of uh, my dissertation year and I had like promised myself I wasn't going to take on any other shit the year that I was doing my dissertation. What is it with these high achievers and they're taking on too much shit? I may be guilty and pointing at myself the same problem. <laughs> but what are you going to do, right? That was just an opportunity I could not pass up because I was out of the closet as a sex worker on the air, which is just not, I have never heard that before. I don't, I don't know where else that was happening. There's a lot of podcasts now, but when I first started doing the radio show, which was called Sex Please, there were, there were, there were none. There was one from Australia. I could, find, I could find none in the U.S. 
And so it felt very important to have voices coming from our community. And the show was actually sort of broadly about sex and gender, just from the perspective of sex workers. And we all had some background also in sex education. So I was trained at Planned Parenthood and was a sex educator for a long time. My partner on the show, Danny Cruz, was a nurse. We had this kind of like background in the educational aspect and in the like practice of actually being sex workers in the world. It was a super fun call-in show. It was amazing. We stayed on the air for about a year. And then there was sort of an up, up, upheaval power grab thing that happened at the station. And all of those late night shows all got canceled like via tweet. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and we were like, wait, what? Wait, what? <laughs> Don't go back to work. So we get this wonderful like huge steps forward representation across the board over the airwaves in California. Good job, LA. And then tons of steps back with one single tweet. Fantastic. Sarcasm. Yeah, yeah that's definitely my, definitely my experience of it. So the team, which at that, by that time, it was me, Danny Cruz, and your dirty girl next door, Lauren Kiley. We we're like, we're not done. We're not done with this project. And we scrambled and we figured out some basics. And, and that team went ahead and made podcasts for two more years. And we changed the name to On the Dresser, which was our joke about where your money goes. And yeah, it became a little bit more sex work focused at that time, more, more actually about sex work and sex workers, more interviews with sex workers, more discussion of policy, more, more interaction with movement politics around sex work and decriminalization. And, you know, it's a project that I'm still quite proud of. I was doing academic work on sex worker representation in literature. And then I got to do this like other, other kind of register of education, like other, other world of education that was more, you know, more about my community at that moment, which is, which was really cool for me. The legitimacy <laughs> that uh, it seems as though anything that revolves around sex that we have to, as a field, any person who's working in the field of sex research, sex work, uh, sex education, any of it, it's like you have to go over and above much like many other people who have experienced any kind of adversity have encountered. You have to be the superstar, right? You have to show research. You have to get a, B, you have to get a PhD. You have to show like all the receipts. And even then, it can be removed as quickly with a tweet. And so I, I just think that it, it, I'm glad that, the, that you all continue to do this show, which no longer, I know you are no longer doing the show, but it is still so important that we have this example. We have an example of people who have done the work, not only just educationally, but have done sex work, but also sex educating that can really give people a different picture and, and really demystify some of the, the, stereotypes that go along with, I mean, all of the pieces of sexuality across the board, I imagine. Yeah, I like that. I think that there's, you know, when we say demystify about sex work, we, we mean, or I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I think we are in agreement on this. One is the myth busting part of it, where you're actually dealing with stigma and working with those parts of the stereotypes and the misunderstandings about what our community is doing and communities. And then there's also this part about once you've really gotten people to start thinking through the stigma that they've been trained to believe, 
then they have to confront the fact that sex workers are actually knowledge producers, that sex workers are people who actually know a lot of things about sex in this country and about bodies and about the variety of secrets that we know about this country is, is kind of astounding. So when I think about that, I, I'm, I'm, all, I'm also seeing like when sex workers make media, one of the things that we're doing is saying like, yeah, I mean, we're human beings and treat us like human beings, but that's like, we're beyond that now. Like we're done with that now. Like for like, we don't need, we don't need anyone else to like go, like whatever that process is, people need to do that on their own. Now, now what we need is attention to what we know. We, right. We need to be respected as people who do work in this world. And also for people with lived experiences in the sex trades who don't consider it sex work, either because of the victimization or because that term just doesn't work for them. There's a lot of communities who don't like that term because it's sort of coupled with this like kind of white feminist reform approach. So there's people who are like, no, I'm not a sex worker, you know, like fuck that. And, and that is like another layer of what's going on right now is like, how, how do we get to the point where people with lived experiences in the trades and the sex industries are respected for wherever they're coming from about that experience and that that experience is seen as a viable and important place where knowledge about our culture is getting created. That's a big reason why I'm so happy to see like so many sex worker podcasts now and so many like, you know, sex workers doing YouTube stuff and like people just making media because it's really important that the, that the voices start being heard. So. Absolutely. And I, I want to jump right into the, how, how you, maybe we can talk about how sex work has been impacted in the face of COVID and the pandemic and what you and your colleagues have seen maybe across the field of, uh, of sex work. And I know, you know, we only got a little bit of time, but I want to make sure that we touch on this because I mean, we've got some research that's showing that they're finding some COVID in semen, right? So this not only impacts sex workers, but all of us out here who want to be having any kind of sexual activity. Yeah. It may be unsurprising for people to hear that that sex workers who are, you know, a criminalized class in this country are suffering the effects of COVID in in very large and systemic ways. So most sex workers are if they're doing full service work, which means kind of high risk sexual contact with their clients, they have had to make extremely difficult choices about whether to keep meeting people in person or not. So there's a lot of sex workers who have stopped meeting people in person just to protect themselves and protect their families. But obviously this is a job where you don't work, you don't get paid. So I have witnessed, personally, I've witnessed people going through a lot of hell to deal with the financial impacts people scrambling to figure out if they can bump up their online presence, if they can pull in more money that way. For most people who do online work, not all, not all, but for most people who do online work, it's supplemental. It's not their major source of income. So for people to be like, okay, I need to make money on OnlyFans now, it's like, it's like me being like, okay, great. Time for Instagram to make me money. Like, well, it doesn't just do it because you want it to, right? Like it's, it takes forever to build up the kind of following that actually is going to really support you financially on those platforms. So people are bringing in, you know, bits here and there, they're, they're scrambling. There's a lot of mutual aid 
you know, and this is something that sex working communities have always had going on, which is that because the state does not support us, because most social justice movements don't want to hook up with sex workers, we actually do mutual aid on our own. We have our own networks of like people calling each other to, you know, send the same 25 bucks back and forth, you know, people, people bailing each other out, people doing like home-based re-entry with each other, people doing addiction support, people doing suicidal ideation support. So all of these things are happening like in our communities, within our communities. We also have so many people who are sex workers and also something else professionally, right? Tons of people do sex work to supplement their other gig. And so what that means is that we have a ton of like super skilled people who can help each other, but we are quite isolated. It's dangerous for a lot of people right now in a way that is really amplified. It's always dangerous to do certain forms of sex work, just the risks are high. But the way that COVID has been affecting us, and especially those of us who rely on in-person work, cannot be understated because there is no safety net for it. Exactly. There's no small business loan program that is offered. There is no uh, support system as far as healthcare goes. It's this entire system that is just being ignored. Right. And so, of course, you know, pushed away, really. Right. And I'm saying we, when I talk about this, just because I'm trying to represent like a, a, a really large group of people who, who are being differentially impacted. And I want to be really clear about that, that like, I am not trying to claim experience I don't have, but I am trying to amplify experiences that are important to amplify right now. So definitely we are seeing higher impact on black trans workers brown trans workers. We're seeing um, the trans trans communities among sex workers are being really affected. On the other hand, we are seeing more money flowing that way too. So there's a couple of nonprofits that are receiving donations right now that have that are seeing an uptick in donations that they haven't seen, you know, even when Trump got elected. And we and we and we knew that our communities were about to get really fucked with. We we were still shouting into the void at that moment. And so something, it does feel like there's a little bit of shift going on as far as people's awareness and also the way that people are responding, non-sex working people are responding to the call coming from sex working communities saying, okay, listen, like enough is enough. We are millions of people here. Yes. (laughs) Have a second of your day where you're aware of the fact that sex work is part of your life, whether you're conscious of it or not. We're, We're around. Yes, you know? absolutely. <laughs> like I, I think you you saying, I, I hope I hope everybody is taking home or at least maybe taking notes. But you know, let's be real. I don't take notes when I listen to podcasts. <laughs> but like the fact that you said, like a lot of the sex workers you know and like yourself included have other work, and and the expertise that all of you have to offer is incredible. And not only that, like, I think this is even more, I mean, what just, this just happened not that long ago on, on Twitter, maybe a few days ago, maybe, maybe a little longer. I don't pay enough attention to Twitter for me to know, but like the coming to terms with that there are people who are in the government right now who have been outed because of their terrible, terrible actions against not only sex workers, but the LGBTQ plus community as a whole. 
And so people, people are tired. People are over it. The oppression has to stop. It must end. So I think when, when I think about like the de- demystifying sex work, I think it, that is also included in it. The, the breaking down of yet another oppressive system. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because I think that it's still a question on people's minds like, well, okay, how do we deal with it then? Americans are like notoriously undereducated about uh, social justice movements and like internationally, the movements for sex workers' rights and decriminalization are much more on the radar for people who are doing social justice work. The American milieu has been absolute terror of uphill battle. And part of that is because of the way that sex workers are anti-police has not been cool until uh, pretty recently. So that's a thing. That makes it hard to organize in the U.S. until now. But then also decriminalization and the difference between decriminalization, which is what sex workers are asking for, and legalization or partial decriminalization, all of these ways that the laws address sex work, the complexity there has never been given their treatment for American audiences. So people in the sexuality fields, I think, tend to try to understand what's going on there. But people outside are like, they think legalization and decriminalization are the same thing, right? And they're not by orders of magnitudes of deaths. So that is a difficulty <laughs> that we're dealing with too. And honestly, like the, I, I was, I've been thinking about this actually for some time and I'm going to do an entire episode about it is that most, most Americans in particular are completely naive about the laws that still exist about other sexual acts or sexual health issues and are completely unaware of those things. They're unaware that and they're still in some states that, that you cannot practice sodomy in quotation marks. We're talking about anal sex. And oftentimes people use the word sodomy to bring up religious shame. So I'm just so glad to not only just connect with you, but like be able to talk about this in a very, very real and clear way, especially now that America, I mean, hopefully America is waking up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, people don't believe it sometimes even when you talk to them about these things, right? Because they just feel like, how could that still be true? That's, that's obviously wrong. That can't possibly still be true. You know, like that's, like that's, the, that's the response I get all the time. Yeah. But I'm just like, uh, actually, these things are totally real. And one of the reasons why I did the PhD was so I could get into rooms that wouldn't hire me just as a sex worker speaker, Right. So I'm getting into college classrooms, I'm getting into therapist consortiums, and they get CEUs from hearing me talk because of the work that I did to get the degree to get me in the rooms. And I am, and I am stunned at the lack of education that is still happening out there. There are so many people who have no idea. In 35 states, so there are, there are 15 states that have laws against this, right, that have made it illegal. But in 35 states, it's still de facto legal, and it's still pretty, it's really common practice for cops to have sex with somebody that they've detained. It is not illegal for them to have consensual, I'm air, I'm air quoting it in my disbelief, right? Consensual sex with somebody they've detained. It's, it's not legal for them to rape anybody, but they can put someone in and have sex with them. And 
let's be clear. You are not able to, to meaningfully, nobody is meaningfully consenting to sex with a cop under threat of arrest or violence. That is not like consent doesn't really exist in a situation when you're under threat of violence. You are under threat. So it's just a thing. That's just a thing that happens. And that's not, you know, that's not part of when we talk about like all of the like fun, cool stuff about sex work, the fact of criminalization being so intense and such a huge part of our lives. It's often not what we want to talk about because it can play into the anti-trafficking camp. It can play into the kind of narratives of like, well, we got to get rid of all of it then. If it's all violent, if it's all racist, if it's all terrible, we got to get rid of all of it. And there's all of these sex workers that are like, no, 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 no. (laughs) That's not what we said. We did not say get rid of all sex work because that actually just takes food off my table. I'm saying like, you know, maybe let me turn my tricks in peace and stay safe. Yes. (laughs) Maybe that. Yes. Make it safer for me to be able to do this. Yeah. Yeah. We as humans like to do this generally like, oh, it's not working. So throw it all out. Like the black and white thinking that happens when it comes to like, oh, it's all or nothing. That's not nuanced or thoughtful or flexible for that matter. Right. In sort of a broader way, isn't that sort of death to all erotics? (laughs) you know like non-nuanced black and white rule-based thinking has really hurt people's sex as far as i can tell absolutely it's made their sex bad (laughs) well and and their sense of sexual self like their entire sense of pleasure identity i could i i mean just my the many people that i've worked with the shame that exists around Pleasure, their body, and any kind of sexual activity is incredible. And even when they start to embrace that sexual self, there is time after time after time having to navigate what that feels like, that shame feels like inside their body. I mean, how do you say, like, I I do kind of want to make sure that we touch on this a little bit. Like, what are some of the reasons someone might seek out a sex worker? What are the themes that maybe you see in your work? I know you can't speak for, I don't want you to speak for entire movement. I mean, sadly, it ends up being that people end up having to, but like, what do you see the themes in your work when people are seeking out sex sex work? Thank you for acknowledging that, that anytime a sex worker speaks publicly, we are sort of expected to speak for all sex workers, which is insane. It's, a, it's not a monolith. It's an enormously diverse and variable group of people who have different beliefs about stuff. And I'm on a kind of, I, honestly, I'm, I'm on a kind of radical, I'm on a kind of radical edge with some of it. Like I, I teach self-defense to sex workers because I want them to be able to, you know, win. Yes. <laughs> so I'm on a certain edge as far as what my beliefs are about what sex workers uh, should be able to do for ourselves. And not everyone, you know, people, people are all over the map on this. My clients over the years have changed with my, uh, what I'm putting out there, right? So what I put out there and what I receive, and I don't do victim blaming about any violence that comes to a sex worker. We don't invite violence based on our, our own ignorance or naivete. And that's something that sometimes you hear is people being like, well, I used to have a really hard time. And then I got my spirit in alignment and now I'm fine. You know, it's like, no, I don't, that's not my, that's not where I'm going to be coming from with with stories about violence and sex work, we do not invite it based on our own presence. 
So I do want to say that there are clients who are looking for space to play out violent fantasy. That is a thing. They, they, they are out there, but they're very much a minority. That's not just because I'm a white worker. You know, you hear this kind of across the board, although certain workers encounter them more often. Mm-hmm. So again, the complexity there. But for me, I went from being, you know, like a college educated kind of sugar baby who could hold a good dinner conversation to what I do now, which is I do mostly kink work now. So I'm working with, I'm working as a dom for the most part now. I have some clients that that have made the cut for for the number of years that they've been loyal to me. Mm -hmm. And then I, when I bring in new clients, they are generally kink clients who are seeking domination. So that hasn't always been the case for me. And I, in fact, when I first started training to be a dom, I recognized that a lot of the sex work that I had done, I had been asked to be submissive because that was part of the kind of feminine script that I was supposed to be following, especially as a younger worker, where I was being asked with a hand on my lower back. (laughs) That was like part of the thing I was supposed to do. And I was supposed to like let people order food for me and give me business advice. And, you know, like there was all of this kind of like age stuff going on there that, um, I mean, I learned a lot, but I also was very clear like, oh, this is what like white straightness is. And like, I don't, I'm not, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel good to me. And I would have to like shift and find different people. And, you know, so it's interesting to now be in a position where my clients are mostly coming to me seeking a person hill, hold the power, hold the ground. It's my responsibility to take care of their bodies in a certain way that is just not culturally supported, right? Like men being submissive, all men, like trans men, cis men being submissive is just um, not culturally supported. They're, they're, they, they have to find their subculture. It's not in the, the man box, right? Not in that very specific place. Yeah. The, the, the scripts about masculinity and power are so rigid. And so that has been a really fun part of my journey, actually, is being able to be in a person who has like a PhD in gender studies, like doing gender role fuckery as part of my life, right? As part of my work That's got to be a little fun. <laughs> it's super fun. <laughs> And it's meant that I've gotten to work with more queer clients that way too, which is really fulfilling for me. Like to be doing kink in in community in that way has also been really good for me. Do you find that for many of your folks that they are maybe even getting to explore some of their own gender work within like with you as their dom? Are, are they getting to explore that within themselves, would you say? Yeah, I mean... I'm not going to romanticize what I do. There's there's a lot of clients who just, you know, want to want to get stuck in the butt. Like that's <laughs> let's let's not pretend that that's not you know, like right? there's people who just want to like get something satisfied and that's what they're paying for and that's fine. But yes, there are also people who want to go a little deeper into like thinking things through and they want to think about what it means for them to have a desire to do submission. They, they, they are thoughtful about it, quite a few of them. And that's also partly what I require for long-term work relationship with somebody is I can't hate them. I have, I have to have some Fair. way of interacting with them that feels okay. 
I've experimented for years with like, what's my, what's my actual boundary here? Like how much distaste can I feel before I start feeling victimized by being here? Mm. And that is the edge, right? That, that a lot of sex workers are trying to discover is what, what actually is my boundary around? Like, can I, can I laugh and smile at jokes that aren't funny? Can I accept money from somebody who I know that they got their money in a really ugly way? Like all of this kind of moral and ethical questions that sometimes are swirling while we're working. I find that being a dom has really helped me kind of clear the field a little bit. And that's been, that's been a joy for me, but that's not everyone's path, you know? So it's just, for me, that's, that's what kind of helped me stay self-aware, self-contained and also working. I was in a violent situation uh, for a while with an intimate partner and I was sexually assaulted and it completely changed my capacity to work for a while. I was not able to work. And I had to do a bunch of healing to kind of get to the point where I could be in proximity to men's bodies again. And that work of trying to figure out what was the safe way for me to interact with men again was like a really incredible part of me understanding how the gender scripts and the gender norms had been affecting me that whole time. So I like that work. I think that work is interesting. That work has been a source of healing and a a source of intellectual fascination for me too. So that's an area where I'm interested. But um, again, that's not everybody's shit. But I, I just think you're you're saying something that I that many of us we don't think about how we share what happens for us post trauma. When there are many, many, many of us, uh, uh, myself included, who've experienced some sort of like sexual trauma of some sort, and then have to go through the work. And if you haven't yet, and you're out there and you're listening, it's worth it. It's hard, but do it. You won't for, you will not regret it. That you have to then learn how can we continue in life in our occupations? How can we continue in life in our, with our various family and friend structures? How do you now post having experienced something terrible, how do you now exist in that life? And I think there's something, I, I can't help but call it this, is there something beautiful in the way that you're, you're talking about getting to be a dom and be that be part of that healing for you? Thanks. <laughs> this is something that um, me and my colleague and my wonderful colleague Alyssa and I talked about in the BDSM episode we just did about the use of BDSM as a healing vehicle. Not only just for yourself, as you've already alluded, but have have you seen that maybe for some of your clients? Oh, yes, definitely. I've seen men who never were safe to explore their desire to wear skirts and heels be transformed into like softer, more wide-eyed, sweet people. (laughs) I've seen people who thought they had it all together, discover that they had not let down their guard in 15 years and, and feel the feelings of that. (laughs) I've seen queer people move through stages of self-acceptance that weren't available to them before. I have one client in particular who is a loyal, loyal, loyal client of mine 
who periodically just writes me letters, rapturous, beautiful letters about how she has developed her self-reliance and her resilience and her strengths and her tools through the work, through, through the kind of, and you know, the ups and downs and the pleasures and pains of BDSM. So yeah, I really believe in that potential. And I also, I also will defend the right for people just to fuck. I do yes. not care if it's spiritual. Yes. I don't care. Yes. <laughs> I don't need it to be healing, fancy, important sex. I do not. And I think that that's a big problem problem with my movement actually is that sex workers rights movements are sometimes like, but it's healing and it's amazing and it's important. And it's like, yes, yes, absolutely. That's available to us. That's been part of my story for sure. And also I have hundreds of forgettable clients who just needed sex and that was it. And that's fine. And that <laughs> that's is okay. fine. <laughs> One of my favorite wonderful mentors, Barry McCarthy talks about good enough sex. And I think that that is exactly what you just said falls absolutely underneath that, that sometimes we just want to fuck and that is okay. You just are a wonderful spirit. I know that you were just like, not, this is not spiritual. This was spiritual for me. I'm just saying. Um, (laughs) How do people find you in the world, Vanessa? Oh, I'm actually real easy to find. Right now, I would say find me on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, I am at V Carlisle. So V for Vanessa. Carlisle is C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. And I'm Vanessa Carlisle on Instagram. That's where I'm most available. On Instagram, Saturdays, I lead a 45-minute somatic self-support session at 11 a.m. Pacific time. And it's a series of full movements that are designed to soothe the nervous system. So I started it when the shelter in place when all of these years of PTSD work and trauma work, I have like an arsenal of physical support activities that I do. So I'm just sharing them. So that's a way to find me is on, on that platform on Instagram. My website is vanessacarlisle.com, but you can definitely contact me there. One thing that it does have is like the list of, I do one-on-one consulting. So that's the way to get a hold of me too is at vanessacarlisle.com. You are wonderful. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for what you're putting into the world because you, I, I mean, the somatic self-work is incredibly important, but so is the entire message of it's okay to just want to fuck. <laughs> like all of it. So wonderful. Folks, find Vanessa anywhere that they have just listed and I will make sure everything is in the show notes. Folks, thanks for sticking around. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening, folks. Please rate and review on iTunes. It helps this podcast get found. If you leave a five-star review, let me know about it on any social media and I'll shout you out on the podcast. You can find my website at ericamiley.com. You can find me on Facebook, the gram, and Twitter. See y'all next time.